Dedicated to the wine industry since 2009. Featuring winemaker, cellar master, vineyardist, and tasting expert, Ron. Basically what we're trying to do on this program is just trying to educate people and trying to make wine less confusing and more friendly. From coast to coast and around the world. You know, we really have had some some neat people on the program. I, I just, I love that. Post your questions and comments during the live show on our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash allaboutwinebtr. Again, that's www.facebook.com forward slash allaboutwinebtr. And now, All About Wine is on. Here's Ron. <laughs> Hey. Back again. Back again. Yeah, absolutely. We're excited. And, um, we also have uh, just a, an update. We have the chat window open on uh, Blog Talk Radio. So if you go to our show page on Blog Talk Radio, it's uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash all about wine. Uh, look around that top episode there, and you'll see the uh, chat page open up there. You can uh, chat with us there as well as on Facebook. So, all right. uh, uh, just I need I need about three more monitors, and I should be set up to do this efficiently. But uh, that's okay. two I need is my about right six, now. six more arms. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna have a whole staff. <laughs> you know, yeah. whole staff to do this, and you know, um, yeah. So uh, welcome to the show, and uh, we have. Uh, Topics and and uh, information of uh, interest uh, in the wine-related uh, field. So uh, stay tuned with us. And like I said, comments or questions on either one of those, our Facebook page or on Blog Talk Radio on our chat uh, section. So do that. Be there. No. Do now. Um, it yeah. is live on Facebook right now, Thursday, January the sixteenth, twenty twenty, at seven o two. So. If you're listening on archives or anything, we're not live. That's 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 our live time. So <laughs> don't, don't call in and expect us to answer. We have right. operators standing by now, but not then. Now, not then. Now, <laughs> any other time. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so we're back another week here. Um, I I was I played golf today. I had an opportunity to jump out and play around the golf because it is so beautiful today. We set a record here in Tampa of 86 degrees, and so I kind of passed up because the high next week is only supposed to be like 62, and so <laughs> yeah, I had to had to get around in before it got cold. But I teamed up with this guy that I met out on the course, uh, and we got ready to leave. We said goodbye to each other, and he goes. What's that address? I go, what address? He goes, oh, the radio show you do. And so I told him. And uh, so, Howard, if you're listening, hey, glad that you tuned in. And it was really enjoyable playing golf with you today. And then when I was driving home, I remembered I have cards made up for All About Wine. And I could have given him a card. And I didn't think about it until I was halfway home. So, so we... Uh, Hopefully, have another listener out there. All right. Uh, what's happening? I, 
I had a couple of announcements and oh gee, where are they? I don't know where they are. They're maybe in the other room, but I'm not gonna not gonna worry about them. It's not dated announcements. Some software out there. I noticed in one of the uh, trade journals I get, they have a list of some software. We haven't talked about software in a while. So before we get into the meat, we're going to talk about phylloxera tonight. But before we get into the meat of the program, uh, phylloxera, I want to pass some of this on. Microworks Wine Software. Uh, this is... Uh, Microworks Wine Software was formed back in 1991 to uh, address the lack of technology servicing the wine industry. Uh, it uh, has a whole bunch of tools that help wineries manage uh, the direct customer or direct to consumer sales. And it just is simplifies and it's more efficient and stuff like that. Uh, all the details of the sales, customers, and inventory are tracked and reported. And uh, they also include visitor center tracking, wine club, and e-commerce sales, and all sorts of stuff. So if you are a winery or if you are working for a winery and you don't have this Microsoft or Microworks wine software, then it's something you really should check out. It is a great, great bit of software to help manage a lot of the stuff and instead of punching the stuff in yourself. Something else, Sensophone software complements the hardware that measures temperature, humidity, and other environmental conditions in the vineyard. Uh, it's been around for over 30 years and it's transitioned from software to uh, alarm systems and all sorts of things. Uh, you can set this up with alarm systems on the vineyard so if there's something that happens that you need to be alerted to immediately. This software will let you know uh, through your phone or through uh, computer, anything else. Uh, monitors environmentally sensitive assets and can be programmed to send emails to anywhere that you want. So good site also for monitoring vineyards. So if you're a grower out there, Sensaphone, S-E-N-S-A, phone, P-H-O-N-E. So, there's another good. It's uh, cloud-based, uh, as most everything is now. Uh, Vinspring. For the last eight years, Vinspring has offered winery e-commerce and allocations for wine club management and stuff like that. Now, you all can get into this, too. I mean, if you want to you know, control your inventory or your wines or stuff, you can do this. So Vinspring is another one. 1999, VinNow. Uh, and Vin Spring, V I N E Spring, S P R I N G. Vin Now, V I N N O W, uh, software is designed for wineries to manage customer data and or data and purchase history, tasting room sales, uh, wine clubs, all that stuff. Uh, it is contract shipping. It can also uh, process labels for UPS and FedEx and stuff like that. So another another nice tool for a winery. And winetracker.co, winetracker, just like the sound, .co, C-O. It's a wine tasting app launched in 2017. 
and this is available on iOS or Android. But uh, the users, this is, might be for somebody, for some of you out there drinking wine. Users can snap photos of the wine they are drinking and then use the app's four sliders to give their personal opinion on the aroma, taste, finish, and overall impression of the wine. The app then all generates a wine expert score, 50 to 100 points, based on these four sliders. Optionally, the user can use touch tags to describe the unique elements they detect in the wine. As they continue using the app, they end up with a visual history of the wines they drink, similar to Pinterest for wine. The second primary feature of this app is a multi-person real-time experience called group tasting, T-A-S-T-I-N-G. If you're hosting a tasting event, whether at a winery or party or whatever, you can create a tasting list ahead of time. Then at the event, attendees can collaboratively taste the wines together through the app. They can see each other's wine scores and comments popping up on the screen in real time. Also, there's an optional blind tasting mode for group tasting feature. Uh, it's... Uh, Sounds like great. I've never heard of this before. This is something that uh, is uh, just launched a couple years ago, back in 2017. And it sounds like a great tool out there. So if you're having wine tastings or if you want something for yourself to keep track of when, when you're doing it, uh, it uh, really it brings the wine itself into closer engages you more in the wine uh, with each one that you're tasting. Uh, it gives you the aroma, taste, and finish of the wine, and it, it improves your understanding of the wines. When you score wine, whenever I was teaching classes, I always told people to score every wine you taste, uh, be it at tasting parties or be it at tasting events, or at home, if you have oh, grab a new bottle of wine, score them. Always score them. That way, it gives you a quick picture of what you thought of that wine. So if you are out looking for wine and you're not sure which one to grab, then grab, look at your scores and say, oh, I really like this particular wine. Look, I gave it a score of this. And then you can look for that. And it's a great way to know what you thought of it and all that instead of just trying. Most people stay with the wines that they have and what they're used to. I would say 90% of the people, if not more, 90% of the people will default to the wines that they're used to. They go into the store and instead of looking around trying something new, will grab something that they've drank before and they always know and they always have. And that's so sad. I, I just I tell people, don't do that. Just try something new. There are a, a variety of wines out there that are exciting and you will end up loving, but you won't know until you try it. And it's like, you know, most people will, will grab a Sauvignon Blanc, which, by the way, Sauvignon Blanc starting to lose its appeal for some reason. But most people will grab a Sauvignon Blanc um, if they're drinking wines or Cabernet or Merlot or Pinot Noir, whatever it is that happens to be their particular grape of choice. 
and that's it. That's what they drink. That's what they grab. That's what they drink. That's what they do every time. And, you know, I've always said, reach out and grab another bottle. Grab a Barbera. Grab a Carignan. Grab a anything. Anything different than what you're used to and give it a try. And keep scores. Mark it down. What you liked about it, what you didn't like about it. Well, now with this winetracker.co app, it gives you something right there in your hand that you can do all that. And it scores it for you and gives it to you. And these are your scores. It's not the experts say you should like this one, so therefore you should like it. It's what you think of it and what, what you like about it. And it's a great way to get yourself a uh, a, a list of wines that you like or don't like or something you're looking for or something that you can pass on. People always ask me, what do you recommend? And I said, well, everything. You know, there's there's so many good wines out there. And if you find one to your liking, find one to your taste, then fantastic. Uh, but you don't know until you try it. Winetracker.co gives you these possibilities to give your scores on it. I have just saw this. This is the first time I saw this. I am not familiar with it until I read this uh, earlier. And uh, actually a magazine came in three or four days ago. And that's when I first saw it. I'm going, wow, this is a great tool. So if you're not writing it down, if you're not keeping track of the wines you're trying, then winetracker.co is a great way to get started. If you are writing them down, you can very easily transfer them and put them in the app so you'll know. But uh, I I wish they had this around for a long time because this is really a, uh, a great, great tool here. So it's also they plan on adding the ability for users to follow individual people on WineTracker. Uh, along these lines, users can automatically receive notifications whenever people they follow taste a new wine. And WineTracker.co is also looking to enable wineries to have conversation threads or email conversations with people who participate in their tasting events. Fantastic. So check it out. I, I don't get any money for this. Or I don't do anything about it. I just noticed this and I thought it was just a wonderful, wonderful new uh, bit of software out there. So winetracker.co, you know, check. I don't know if it costs anything. And the article does not say anything about a cost. So I, I don't know if it costs or if it's a free download or what. It doesn't say anything anywhere on it. And I guess it's available on both. Uh, yes, it is. iOS and Android. So you can get it on either one. And so uh, there you go. Winetracker.co. Good opportunity to keep track of what you're drinking and what you have had to when you go shopping to know what to look for and things like that. All right. Uh, let me uh, find my cursor. There it is. And a few, a couple of things here that I want to go before I start talking about Philoxra also. And it is, uh, it says hard times there for, U.S. wines. Uh, the, the report coming out, the annual state of the wine industry report is out, and it doesn't look good. 
they're saying that the uh, industry is in a new transition period because of weather and they also included things like the fires that have been going on around the world and the temperature changes and hell storms in uh, Bordeaux and early freezes and, and, and uh, late frosts and stuff. There's a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, the wine industry is in flux right now, trying to keep up with everything and trying to get everything to uh, uh, be something to present to you, the customer. And so we'll, we're going to see some stuff. We're going to see some changes, and it's going to continue to be changes ahead because of what the uh, what the world is doing, what the climate is doing, and the fires and all that stuff. So be aware. The, it's, it's going to affect prices, too, and that's one of the, one of the things you're going to start, start seeing. Uh, the... Uh, 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 in collaboration with the Geisenheim University Pro Wine Business Report, says that the climate change is actually the biggest threat right now to the wine industry because the grapes themselves, the vineyards themselves, are in such a small comfort zone. And when they start getting out of that comfort zone, it's going to start changing that. That's why there's new grapes coming out all the time and being approved for wine and all that to try to help continue the taste and profile that you're used to, that you like and all that. It may be a different name instead of Cabernet Sauvignon. It may be something else, but the taste profile is going to be there and all that. And because of climate change, this has been one of the reasons why uh, they're doing that. So, something to keep in mind. Oh, I, my engineer just brought me my wine for this evening. Thank you. This looks exciting. This is Campo Viejo. Campo Viejo. C-A-M-P-O-V-I-E-J-O. Campo Viejo. That's a ro- Roja. Uh, it's uh, Tempranillo. It is, uh, what does it say on this? It doesn't say too much. Uh, let me see, Campo Real, and then that whole bunch is in Spanish. It's from Spain, too. It's, it's uh, Tempranillo from Spain, actually. Uh, Rojo, Rojo. There we go. Since our pioneering founder, Jose Artiglega's decision to found Campo Viejo in the heart of Rojo, we continue to create expressive and characterful wines that celebrate the richness of the region. And it says, grape, tempranillo, tasting notes, aromas of ripe red fruit with spices and vanilla, perfumed soft and fresh food pairings pasta poultry and fresh light cheeses grilled chicken small bites light cheese grilled veggies serve at 61 to 63 degrees fahrenheit 
and it's imported by Bernard Ricard of New York. So, and that's about all it says on it, which is really more than a lot of them do. 13.5% ABB, alcohol by volume, and what's the front say? Not too much. Produced and bottled by Bodegas Campo Viejo. And Bodego is farm. So, there you go. A Tempranillo. And I need to stop for a second here while I do a smell. Oh, oh that smells good. I'm getting berry, plum, blackberry. little hint of that vanilla he mentioned, but not much. Just a little slight hint of vanilla there. A little spiciness. I can't pinpoint the spice, though, but a little bit of spiciness. And let's see the taste. Oh. Very good. A classic Tempranillo. If you've never had a Tempranillo, it's a little bit acidic, a little bite to it. Uh, it's usually light and fruity. This one is not as dark as some of the other red wines, a little bit lighter color, but it goes very well with uh, lighter dishes. Uh, I wouldn't pair this up with a steak, particularly because I think the steak would overpower the wine, but I think it would go great with uh, a pasta dish. Uh, and as long as you don't have really, really heavy red sauce, this would go great with a pasta dish. It'll go fantastic with chicken, which I think that's what we're having tonight, is some, some grilled chicken, not grilled. Uh, uh, I don't know, chicken something. She's got a name for it, which is chicken and sauce. But... Very nice wine overall. Just a very, very pleasant wine. Uh, Campo Viejo, Tempranillo, 2017. I don't know if I mentioned that. Very good. A very good wine. So, uh, and it is a cork. And it's also got a foil top on it, which is difficult to get on. Jeez. Um, so, Tempranillo. Let me pour myself the rest of it. Fill up my glass a little bit more because if I don't, then my engineer can come in and take the bottle and I won't have any more. All right. So, uh, nice wine for the night. And let's see. Is something else here? Uh, yes. Um, the, uh, new tech is on the way to detect smoke taint in wines or in grapes. It's, they're working on trying to develop a way that they know sooner instead of waiting until the wine is actually made before they detect the smoke taint. Uh, Big Boosh is in Australia, obviously, because of the fires there. 
So the test uh, is still in the infancy. It's not available yet, but it's something that they're looking at developing as soon as they can because of uh, the fires, especially once in California a couple of years ago, and then now Australia. And the smoke tank fears are causing a lot of the growers to be nervous, particularly the buyers. Uh, they're there was a crop in California after the fires. A grower had a contract with a winery, and the winery refused the grapes because of fear of smoke taint. They didn't want to make the whole batch and spend the time and all that. And so it's it's an ongoing problem, an ongoing thing. And so they will try to develop, they are trying to develop a new technician technology that will detect the smoke taint uh, as soon as the grapes are picked. So that could really, really help a lot, especially with all these fires all over the place, which, you know, devastating, devastating stuff. And let's see. Uh, another thing here, and then we're going to start talking about some phylloxera. Uh, what phylloxera is, and just you know, all you ever wanted to know about phylloxera. Uh, let's see, where is the other one that I was going to find? Uh, oh, here, just speaking of the fires, this is where I was going. I mentioned Sonoma buy their wines, and it's still it's a good idea buy the wines, buy the wines from Sonoma because Sonoma it really needs. To move their wines, they need the money, they need the help. So if you're in a position of trying to pick out a wine, grab one with the Sonoma County, California label. Or if you're looking at something from other places, Australia, Boss Hunting Brush Fire Relief Raffle, and they're calling for uh, everybody to buy Australian wines that were in the uh, in the fire and the smoke and all that. The uh, three thousand three hundred hectare of vineyards have been destroyed. One thousand one hundred hectares went up in flames. Hectares uh, less are more more than a, an acre. I'm not sure what the equation is on that, but Tilbert. The Tilbrook estate was all but destroyed. Uh, Tilbrook hasn't just lost this year's crop. They've also lost next year's crop because uh, the plants are not going to bear fruit until probably 2022 at the earliest. Uh, the blaze known as the Cuddly Creek Fire uh, has a indirectly or directly affected 63, 63 growers in Australia. It tore through Hensky, Linwood's, Linswood Vineyards, destroying 90% of their wines and caused over $1.5 million in damage to the site and equipment there. Um, the flames uh, don't touch a lot of the vineyards, but the smoke has caused a, an unbelievable amount of damage to it. Uh, the um, wineries are... Asking you, 
buy their wines. They still have wines on the shelf. They still have wines, everything to generate a turnover of monies, a turnover of business. And the main ones, and I'll, I'll give you this list. Yeah, I, I'll try to keep, I'll see if I can't post this on on the Facebook page so you can see that. But Adlai Hills has wineries. And uh, Golding Wines, Anderson Hill, Art Wine, Barrister's Block, Burden Hand, Emmeline Wines, Jeff Weaver, uh, Hensky, New Era Vineyards, Nova Vita Wines, Petaluma, uh, Repost Wines, Simon Tolly Wines, Tilbrook Estate, uh, and they also have a GoFundMe page, uh, Save Tilbrook GoFundMe page, uh, Tomish Wines, Turin Wines, and Ventiloper. That's all out of Adelaide Hills. And then from New South Wales, Obsession Wines, Johansson Wines, Corbera Wines, and then uh, they're asking for any donations you might want to give to the Adelaide Hills Wine Region Fire Appeal, or you can buy tickets for the Boss Hunting's Bushfire Relief Raffle. So there's a different ways you can help them in Australia. Some some devastating stuff there. So it's uh, if you get an opportunity, then buy some of those wines. I will put that list up on Facebook after the show. I'll, I'll list it all up there. Uh, so if you are interested in buying some Australian wines, then look for these names. I don't know anything about the vineyards. They may and probably aren't available, may not be and probably aren't available all throughout the United States. So if you live in the United States, then they might not be here. They are available in other countries, though. They Australia ships their wines all over the world. So you can find those just about everywhere. Uh, and let's see. Uh, anything else here that I want to? Not on that. Okay. Phylloxera. Does anybody know what phylloxera is? Uh huh. You might have heard of phylloxera. You might have heard of the stories about phylloxera and all that. But let's talk about, I always bring up phylloxera. We talked about phylloxera a week ago, I think, when I mentioned that uh, they found, no, it was a glassy wing sharpshooter they found in, in Pierce disease in, in California and a lot of areas. But phylloxera, phylloxera has been around for a long time. Uh, it's, it's starting to appear in Walla Walla, Washington. And because of that, they're a little concerned, a little panicky. But let me... Let me go through and tell you about phylloxera, everything you wanted to know about phylloxera or didn't want to know. It's the famous pest. You, you, you may have heard of vast areas of France and Europe that was destroyed in the 19th century from a bug, and phylloxera is the bug. It almost wiped out some of the world's greatest wine regions, literally almost destroyed them. Uh, and it's now being found in Walla Walla, Washington. Uh, so, grape phylloxera is a tiny, pale, yellow aphid uh, that's like an insect uh, from the uh, phylloxidera family. Uh, it's within the Hempatura order of bugs. 
It was described way back in the 1860s uh, in the crisis in France as Phylloxera vasitrix, or devastator of vines, and later found to be the same as the previously described Dactylucifera vitifolia, or Phylloxera vitifolia. Same thing. The insect is a sap sucker, feeding on the roots and leaves of grapevines. It has a very complex life cycle, up to 18 stages, and that's why it's almost impossible to get rid of it, because there's so many stages in this bug that you can't spray or treat for a particular thing and get rid of it. It will grow back. It will come back to other stages, uh, like a flea. A flea has four stages, and you, uh, if you get a flea infestation, you have to spray and then come back a couple of weeks later and spray again because the sprays won't kill the larva or the egg stage. So Phylloxera has 18 stages, and they can be grouped into four basic forms. But uh, the stages within these forms is why it's so difficult to control. The sexual stage, the leaf stage, the root stage, and the winged stage, which is one of the ones that is really scary. Sexual form infestations can start with one single insect. The nymph lays male and female eggs on the underside of leaves. These hatch into male and female forms without mouth parts, which then mate and die. So it's not a serious stage, but it's starting cycle. The first female lays a winter egg in the bark of the vine's trunk. This develops into the leaf form. Okay, so therefore, cold weather can kill it, but it if it's already got a leg, uh, an egg laid in the trunk, it will survive the winter. Okay, uh, the winter egg survives the winter and it develops into the leaf form. The leaf form nymph, uh, the funtrix or stem mother, climbs onto a leaf of suckers growing from the rootstock at the base of the vine. And the suckers are the little small things scribbling out from the bottom of the vine. They're, you know, you find those and you usually cut those off. But she climbs onto the leaves of the suckers and uh, toward the rootstock. She creates galls using saliva, okay, which is a little hard thing. And to these, she lays eggs without fertilization. Okay, so they're, they're, you know, no good. There are no clear signs of phylloxera attack in the upper vine canopy at this stage. Adults can lay up to 200 eggs per cycle. You still don't know they're there. The root form. In turn, these new nymphs may move to other leaves or to the roots, where they begin new infestations in the root form. They pierce the roots to find nourishment, secreting a poison to keep the wounds open. Like when you get bit by a mosquito, the mosquito passes in a little bit of 
of uh, anticoagulant, so it will the blood will keep uh, blood will keep flowing and not you know plug up. They put it in there, and the poison keeps the root open. Swellings form on older roots, and characteristic hook-shaped galls form on root hairs. But how often do you look down at the root hairs? Okay. The latter stop the growth of feeder roots, eventually killing the vine. And that's what does it. The root form lays eggs for up to seven more generations. Each can also reproduce palatinogenically or without fertilization each summer. Crawlers move to other roots on the same vine or other vines through cracks in the soil, along the surface or even through the canopy. Though unwinged, root form crawlers can be carried short distances in the wind. They're very small. You know, it's just a little small, tiny, tiny bug. The wing form nips hatch in autumn and hibernate the roots until the following spring to feed on the rising sap. So they're there all winter too. They start, or they restart the cycle by laying new eggs on the leaf underside. In humid areas, these nymphs develop winged forms and so can fly to unaffected vines to start new cycles. Yes, you may say it now. Oh my gosh, that is scary. And it is. It's it's and if unchecked, they will destroy vineyards. And that's what happened in France. Individual vine plants can be affected at first, where flying insects are not present. The infestation tends to spread along vine rows more quickly than it jumps across the inter-row spacing. And since the roots really run pretty close together, they just, you know, go right down the whole row and can kill a whole row. It is thought that plants affected at the time of planting tend to show signs of decline after a couple of seasons. When an established vineyard comes under attack, it may be 10 to 15 years before the signs become unmissable. And by then, ripping up the vines is the only thing you can do. No way to save it, no way to stop it, no way to do anything. You got to rip out the vine, and be sure you get all the roots and stuff out of the ground. I mean, it's just it's there. They can be in the ground, and once you rip out the vines, they can still be in the ground. So you really have to treat it and all that. Very, very expensive, very time-consuming. Really, a, a major problem. And once you find a grapevine, you're not getting anything for two to three years anyway. Any grapes, it takes about five years to get your full crop. So it's just a, a horrible, horrible cycle there. Soil types and climate have been shown to affect the density of phylloxera populations. The bug prefers human conditions above and below the ground. And this is why France was affected. It's very humid in the areas and the vineyards and stuff there. And some of the areas that uh, it was originally from California, stuff like that, uh, the humidities and stuff really helped spread it, although California and all the grapevines are not affected. 
It is thought that plants affected at the time of planting tend to show signs of declining after a couple of seasons. Okay, I just read it 10 to 15 years before the signs become a missile. Vineyards in schist or sandy soils in warm, dry regions fared better in the 19th century global outbreak. The same applies to many of the areas which have best resistive flocks for throughout the 20th century. Uh, Portugal and Greece, these areas. Islands can be safe if the human transport of the insect is controlled. Chile has been protected by the Andes on one side and the Pacific Ocean on the other side, and uh, the uh, Atacama Desert to the north. Chile is very, very careful about what's brought in, too. I mean, they do some major inspections on anything that's brought in just to be sure that it is controlled. They are one of only two countries, and I, I believe Afghanistan is the other one. I don't think there's a whole lot of grapevines in Afghanistan right now. I may be mistaken, but there, there are some, but it's not a well-known wine region. And they are protected because of the mountains all around. They're basically, the country is surrounded by mountains, and areas are protected there. But Chile has been protected because of where they are and all that, because of the mountains and the uh, ocean. So they have never been affected by phylloxera. There is a major cavity with very dry soils, though. If the bug does manage to survive, its impact is then amplified by the absence of any moisture. And this could be a major problem in the recent outbreak in Walla Walla, Washington, and the regions that are affected there because of the dry soils and it could, could reproduce quickly. The reproductive cycle of phylloxera is thought to be disrupted by hard winters, but climate change looks like it's playing a new role in the outbreaks of winters as the winters are getting milder in many, many regions. And Walla Walla is again, one of the regions. It's not getting as cold. That's why it doesn't break out up north. And I say up north, anything when it gets really, really cold. Can you imagine how devastating it might be if a, a strain got into Pennsylvania or New York where all the Welch's grapes are growing, or even in areas that make raisins? Those are grapevines, and those could be affected. The reproductive cycle of phylloxera is thought to be Disrupt just for the I need to keep up with where I'm reading. Most crucially for vineyard owners, American vine species have evolved alongside the insect and so have developed varying degrees of resistance. They exude a sticky sap that clogs the insect's mouthparts. Also, if an insect does open a wound, they can form a protective layer of tissue over it to protect against bacteria and fungal infestation. That's why American grapevines are protected. They have developed this over the years, over the century. They grew up together, like I said here. And the rootstock, American rootstock, is pretty much safe. It pretty much has been protected because it's found its own way of 
protecting the grapevines and the uh, infestation covering up the the way that they eat that the phloxera bug eats. Phloxera in Europe. Let's talk about that. You may have heard this story before. It's always funny. People come into the winery and say, have you heard about phylloxera? Yeah, I am familiar with phylloxera. I, I know what it is and what it does, but certain wineries in certain places will tell you about phylloxera and how it affected Europe and all that. And uh, it's good. I'm, I'm glad they do. It's it's a great way to to educate people and spread it out there. But let's talk about a little bit more here, what happened over there in Europe. Phloxera did not suddenly appear in Europe from uh, from the beginning. Uh, paradoxically, it is understood that the insect was first brought to Europe on specimens of American vines collected by British and European botanists. The interest in American vine had been, vines had been prompted by the powdery mildew outbreaks in European vineyards in the 1850s. And it was hoped that American vines would show more disease resistance. These vines were still thriving, so alarm bells did not ring. Remember I told you 15 years once it's established and stuff like that. So these vines, they thought it was great. No powdery mildew. Technological advances dictated the timing of the outbreak. These included the development of the ward case, which is a sealed glass container which allowed a plant to set in sunlight on a ship's deck while protected from winds and spray. So, again, it was perfect growing condition for this bug. I'm sure they warded it and kept it moist and all that. More generally, the advent of steamship also contributed because it was faster. Vineyards in Britain were devastated first. Now, you always hear about France, but very few people understand that British vineyards, when they brought these vines over, they were planted in Britain. And British vineyards got serious, serious problems there. Then the problem spread to France and much of Europe. In 1863, the first vineyards inexplicably began to die in their own region. By 1889, total wine output in France was less than 28% of that in 1875. 1889 from 1875, so 14 years. And I just said that that's when it starts showing the effects, killing the vines, 10 to 14, or 10 to 15 years. So it just it started to do it. So 1889, full, full fledged outbreak. Knowledge spread slowly back then. You didn't have the internet, you didn't have all the stuff people thought. Many growers saw their vineyards die without knowing the reason. And in France, some took to burying live toads under each vine to draw out the poison, which obviously didn't work. There was all sorts of things too. I have read really hilarious different things that they tried. It was just unbelievable, all the different things that they tried to save their vineyards. The complex life cycle of phylloxera makes initial detection tricky. They they had no idea what they were looking for anyway. Uh, Furthermore, the growers rarely dug up 
healthy looking vines, so they had no reason to check on it. By the time dead ones were scrubbed up and inspected, the insects had moved on. Yeah, they didn't want to live off of a dead vine themselves either. The 1866 discovery of phylloxera in vines in the Lower Rhone by Jules Emil Planchon and colleagues is said to have happened because they pulled up a still productive vine by mistake. You know, I mean, you go out and you start trimming off your plant and stuff like that, took it off, and all of a sudden you go, oops, sorry, I took off a, a good little branch here. Well, that's basically what they did. Unfortunately, that discovery did not lead to a swift, coordinated response. Some experts, especially in Paris and Bordeaux, rejected the findings of country bumpkins from the south who were not professional entomologists or plant scientists. And I, I, to expand on this a little bit, this happened, and it was very serious. They, they found a lot of stuff they, in the south of France. There was a lot of things that they were doing. And the grape-growing regions didn't acknowledge them. They thought it was, well, again, just uh, some country bumpkins that didn't know what they were talking about. Many also felt the infestation was a symptom rather than a cause. So when you see the bugs, this is not causing it. This is because of it we got the bugs. This is uh, actually this boils down to the 19th century and preoccupation with the psychological model of disease, which focused on the internal imbalances in the plant rather than the external forces acting up on it. You know, it's the disease was because of what's in the plant. That's what's causing it to die. There's something not something that's gone. And it's really odd when you start thinking about it because they know and the reason the plants were brought but because of powdery mildew. And the powdery mildew was getting on it and it was was harming vines and stuff. But they still was not convinced that it was something that was inside. So they searched elsewhere for possible solutions. It would take another five years for them to uh, the uh, opposition to fully dissipate, but around 1869, phylloxera was more widely accepted as the cause. An infested dying vineyard in the southern Rhone suffered in the spring floods of that year. Once it dried out, the insects had gone, and the vines flourished. So it had been noticed that sandy soils seemed to offer some protection. Vineyards were planted in the dunes in the Rhone Delta in areas that would not otherwise have been thought in any way to be suitable for grapevines. The success of these plots also supported the idea of phylloxera as the cause of the problem. When they say flooding spread it out, they they did that in a lot of areas. They figured that if they flooded their vineyards, that it would help mitigate the problem. And it did on some, but it was not always conceivable to try to flood an entire vineyard. And so they would flood what they could. And if they didn't kill all of them, they would end up spreading back over again. So it was a 
nice thought, but not something that was able to to really work. Figures such as Pranchon suspected that the vines which carry the insects may also provide a response. Such ideas were supported by now celebrated American figures such as C.V. Raleigh, the state entomologist of Missouri. His Darwinian beliefs led him to appreciate and focus on the resistance to phylloxera in American species. So he was the one that actually started doing it. And I've heard people say, oh, it was Texas that saved him. And it was here and it was there and all that. that you know, C.V. Raleigh actually was the one that thought that American species were the ones that were resistant. So maybe. Transatlantic Corporation by Panchon and Raleigh meant that 700,000 vine cuttings were imported to France from St. Louis over a couple years, 1872 to 1873. But knowledge of the American vines was non-existent in France and very limited in the United States. Bets for heads whether rootstock or direct producing vines would be more effective in initial efforts focused at great cost on the least effective American species. So Planchon, on returning from the U.S. in 1873, recommended early hybrid varieties such as Concord and Clinton, either to cultivate as vines or use as rootstock. And there is the cure, actually. These have a high percentage of Vitus labrusca, which originates in cooler northern forests of the U.S. These are native United States, uh, native North American grapes. The vines struggled in the French heat and when used as rootstock material or cultivated as whole plants, were less phylloxera resistant in the new conditions. The wines tasted unpleasant also, carrying the musty, foxy hallmarks of Labrusca. Muscadine, if you will. If you all are familiar with the muscadine grape and the muscadine wines, the foxy hallmarks, musty, foxy hallmarks. And many of the growers who placed their faith in this went out of business. So work on grafted vines was hardly less difficult. A successful rootstock would need to graft easily, show longer-term affinity to the French vinifera variety, and have resistance to phylloxera. So the American vines needed to be properly classified as research led to new species being discovered. Most importantly, Vitus ripera and Vitus rupestris. Different species have different traits and preferences based on the conditions in which they evolve. Not all wild species form and are grow up and evolve the same way. So, careful selection among the various cuttings collected at the University of Montpelier through 1870s led to the propagation of and distribution of around one dozen rootstocks. Ripera glor de Montpelier and Rupestris du Lot were among the most successful. And by the 1890s, further work resulted in a new generation of hybrid rootstocks better suited to French conditions. 
Attempts were made, led by the University of Bordeaux, to breed new hybrid varieties which would not need a graft. This was, ba uh, was based around an optimistic view of genetic inheritance, which suggested the rootstock traits of American species could be combined with the fruit systems of French vine parents. This duality was vigorous until around 1900 and continued, and continued less vehemently around the world well into the next century. The hybrids never captured the taste of the renifera parents but they did prove more hardy and warmer, uh, warm, colder climates and for resisting other diseases. Though they are generally banned for quality wine in the European Union, many of these remain a stalwart in California, Oregon, and Washington. Uh, other attempts to thwart other attempts to combat phylloxera. The idea of using American vine species to fight back caused great conflict in France. They were viewed by many as the villain of the story because it was American great, our American vines that were brought over to begin with. So, you know, here, use our vines to fix our vines. They're going, no, no. But many figures within the French wine industry did not wish at any price to compromise the integrity of French vineyards, grape varieties, and wine by introducing alien plant material. So these groups instituted a phase of non-biological countermeasures known as La Defense, based on sand and water. Flooding techniques required a great deal of infrastructure, and the government slowed to plan the necessary canals. Also, war with Prussia ended in 1871, and the conflict and its aftermath limited the effectiveness of the French government. Nevertheless, 100,000 acres were flooded. And again, unless you got everything in your vineyard. Total plantings in sand topped, in sand topped around 50,000 acres. Even today, there are still some dotted ones around Charlemagne and stuff like that. However, in sand, almost all vine nutrition must be supplied by fertilizers. And attempts to pump river silt onto the plots only served to reintroduce the pest. So, that didn't work. Coastal winds in these sandy sites were often problematic as they carried away the sand. And the vines tasted very different to those previously made further inland. They're still drinkable, but they tasted different. Insecticide trials in the 1870s were championed by the government. Most were laughable. All were ineffective and only served to emphasize uh, or take the emphasis away from rootstock-based strategies, which was really the only way to go. Treatments using the volatile chemical solvent carbon disulfide, as developed by uh, Baron Paul Thenard, proved the most effective. This oily liquid settles in the soil and asphyxiates the bug. It proved particularly effective on phylloxera, but did not kill all of them. Again, I mentioned earlier the 18 cycles of life, it went in. This meant annual treatments were necessary. 
which gradually weakened the vines. And in addition, skilled workers were needed uh, to do it and do it properly. And the cost was to the point where most growers couldn't afford it. The Champagne region to the north avoided the worst effects of the pest until early 1890s. And as late as 1890, the local trade journal was recommending the planting of alfalfa, lupins, and saffron in the vineyards to keep phylloxera at bay you know, between the plants so they wouldn't spread. Eventually, all the blind alleys were abandoned and a greater focus on replanting with hybrid rootstocks became known as La Reconstitution. By 1900, France had the pest under some semblance of control. But phylloxera spread to other European countries either by American or even French cuttings, or by both. Italy and Spain's wine industries were hit from the 1870s, along with Portugal, Germany, and Switzerland. Phlox was found in California in 1874 near the city of Sonoma. And by 1900, 30,000 acres have been destroyed across the state. This is California now. The Balkans and Greece suffered from around the turn of the century. Around the same time in Australia, Victoria and New South Wales were affected. Our strict quarantines and restrictions on transporting plant matter protected other regions. Many French firms planted heavily in what is now Croatia and Slovenia. These vines were averaged between 1902 and 1905 prompting immigration that would energize wine industries in North America and Australasia. That's why a lot of people from that area immigrated and started the movement of planting across the country and ended up in California. In the 20th century, the global industry could at least draw on conclusion and reach the 30 years of debate in France. Use of carefully selected grafted rootstocks on vinifera scions seemed to stabilize the situation for much of the 20th century. But not all rootstock is created equal. And so therefore, they're not all equally resistant. And among the resistance that any rootstock offers can diminish with time. And this is phylloxera mutates. There are now several hundred genetic strains of phylloxera documented worldwide. Because just like everything else, diseases, everything else, they can mutate to fight. I mean, we hear about the drug-resistant viruses that are out there because the mutations phylloxera is able to do it too. In 1990 in California, many vines grafted in the widely used AXR1 were found to be infested. Some suggest that this was inevitable as it is a vinifera variety, but others such hybrids such as 41B have continued to be more effective. So, and I remember that 1990 infestation in California, a serious thing. The Napa Valley got hit very hard during that period, and they took out a lot of the vines. A lot of the vineyards were replanted and, uh, well, removed and 
the areas were replanted and they went very heavy, very heavy in Cabernet Sauvignon. Cabernet Sauvignon and uh, Chardonnay are, are all over Napa now because of the flocker infestation of the, of the 90s. Investigations show that Flocker has mutated into biotype 2, which could overcome the rootstock resistance. And uh, right here, then it says around two-thirds of the vineyards in Napa had to re- be replanted. And uh, that's uh, what caused the Mandavi family to take their company into public ownership because of the cost of doing that. Another important point is that only some rootstocks have such resistance that the insect does not lay eggs. So in many grafted vineyards, phloxera can still survive and reproduce just with less devastating consequences. So similarly, sandy soils are not infallible. The famous Bayon Aceto Vineyard in Santa Maria Valley, uh, AVA, is planted with its own rootstock which has stayed phylloxera free thus far. And there are wineries in Spain and uh, a couple of them in Spain that have their own rootstock. And there are some that uh, the Champagne region has in, in 2004 lost one of the ungrafted parcels that went into its Valais uh, Cuvée. Uh, Flocker had been discovered there six years before and it finally killed it all in 2004. Many growing regions have uh, sufficient consideration uh, to rootstock choice. And this is not necessarily due to trust and soil or other factors. Many of these regions have developed since the 1960s and were focused on expansion and grafted vines cost three times as much as ungrafted vines, sometimes even more. So phylloxera has been present in some form in the state of Washington since the 1910s, but this area is particularly at risk because many growers here chose to plant uh, vines in their own roots, uh, so they're not grafted. Uh, The reasoning was that harsh winters slowed down phylloxera reproduction. Added to this, Grafted vines were reported to recover more slowly from frost, but it's warming up, and so it has changed that formula. New Zealand's South Island flocks were discovered in the central Otago wine region in 2002, and it now, uh, at the time, only 55% of the vines were resistant rootstock. Now it is slowly increasing because of warmer climates. Phloxera, there is no cure. If they've been attacked by phloxera, they're going to die. There's no chemical, there's no biological controls or nothing. Flooding the vine is rarely even a last resort. Best solution remains to rip out a vineyard and plant a more suitable rootstock. Although you can choose clones which Oregon and Pinot Noir has dozens and dozens of clones. When you get stuff a Pinot Noir, it's not a true Pinot Noir to clone. And most of them are. And sometimes, if you're curious, you can contact wineries uh, in Oregon and say, what 
phone have you used on this particular Pinot Noir? And they'll tell you. You can't talk to the people who answer the phone because most of the time they don't know. But uh, so uh, there are different areas that check for it, and different uh, viticultures that are aware of it. And Vine Health Australia, uh, which was formerly called the Phylloxera and Grape Industry Board of South Australia, tests root stocks uh, for at least seven different strains of Phylloxera. Around the world, protocols continue to be introduced to control the movement of machinery and people between vineyards. Machines must be steam cleaned. Footwear must be thoroughly cleaned. Passes, uh, uh, anything that passes through the vineyard, mechanized or manual, must be kept to a minimum. And this makes sense considering that, you know, it can go on, especially biodynamic practice uh, uh, practitioners uh, are very, very vigilant on what goes through the vineyard and where the people come from and all that because they don't use any type of chemical control. The research is now underway to introduce new, more resistant rootstock to combat phylloxera's ability to develop new biotypes overcome rootstock. A recent 2018 study examining the genetic factors of phylloxera resistant in rootstocks identified a single allele called RDV2 that confers that trait. It's probably a biomarker or something. Also in 2018, Vine Health Australia reported that it had successfully trailed DNA profiling techniques trialed profiling techniques to detect genetic material phylloxera and vineyard soil pores. Though sample taking is easy, the storage and transport conditions are crucial. Therefore, it may take some time for this to become a common practice. But with drones and the speed they can get these to test, it could speed it up and make it much more uh, possible to detect if there is phylloxera in the vineyard or in the soil. And there you go. That is phylloxera. And yes, it's been around, and yes, it's still around, and yes, it's devastating, and yes, we don't know how to stop it. Which is sad, but it's good to know that they are working on it, and um, there's universities and um, people in the industry have to look into this for sure. Oh yeah, uh, they're doing a good job. Eight. Yes, yeah, well, it's making strides for sure. Just uh, yes, yes, they Keep working with what they have and go from there. It's not not an easy task for sure. If it was, yeah. it would have been solved a long time ago. <laughs> a long time ago. <laughs> You're yeah. absolutely right. Absolutely right. And probably not cheap either, but uh, yeah, no doubt. Considering what's at considering what's at stake, uh, you know, yeah, keep at it. And uh, oh yeah, and, and you know, I mean, things like eighteen different cycles of of, of a life. I mean, how do you yeah. how do you stop any of that? And that's that's a big problem there too. And becoming mutant, mm-hmm. I, I can't remember the the particular number, but the number of mutations 
around the world of phylloxera is mind-boggling in itself. It's just, yeah. And with with the warmer climates, this bug is going to survive in areas that it never did before. So, mm. yeah. Mm, not good. It's Hopefully, of a concern. Yeah. Hopefully get on top of this uh, soon. Um, yes. Yeah. Well, so that is pretty much everything on phylloxera. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Yes. It's a lot of, a lot it's, of interesting. There. it's just interesting stuff mm-hmm. there. And, you know, and, and people need to know this, too, because uh, it can affect prices. It can affect your wine. And these are things that, you know, this, you know why isn't double anymore? Well, because flock trade and then you can say oh i know what that is you know so yeah very good um all right we will uh unless you have anything late minute here i don't know i think anything. that does it for tonight no questions here so uh we will go ahead and close the show out it is uh about uh 8:13 p.m. eastern standard time a bit of information <laughs> and uh, we will see you all uh, next week uh, Thursday which will be hold on a second let me get my calculator uh, seven days from today it is 1323 that's 23 that's right January 23rd and yeah, uh, carry the one did you carry the one that's the, the key to carry the one so that's right <laughs> thank you very much yeah, <laughs> I was yeah, off by one I thought the 20 yeah, yeah. Was it getting, oh the it's, one okay it's easy, easy to forget to carry that one yeah yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> we will see you all next uh, week, whatever date that is, January 23rd, right here on Blog Talk Radio and on Facebook. Thank you very much for tuning in um, on at your own leisure, of course. They're available 24 hours a day uh, and just about everywhere, it seems like. iTunes and, uh, gosh, it's uh, the, the reach. I never thought it was that much, but, uh, yeah, they're yeah, it's, being carried it's, it's quite a bit, so. Yeah, we are um, thrilled. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And uh, thank you for spending your uh, hour with us, hour and fourteen minutes. And we'll see you all next week. Have a be safe and have a great week. Thank you. Drink responsibly. Be safe, and we'll see you next week. This concludes tonight's broadcast of All About Wine with your host Ron. For show information, links to All About Wine on Twitter and Facebook, or to be a guest on the show, visit the show website at www.allaboutwinebtr.com. Archived shows are available for download on iTunes or on our show page at blogtalkradio.com forward slash allaboutwine. Thank you for listening. Drink responsibly, and we'll see you next time on All About Wine.